Hello, this is Bear Christianity, chapter 7b, Not Dressed Yet. And these are things from chapter 7a, Religious Underwear, that I want to address before moving on. Now the first is the idea that you don't necessarily need to know anything about Jesus in order to know him and so be saved. Now I said this was great because it means that millions or billions of people throughout history aren't left out just because they never got a chance to hear about Jesus. But this doesn't mean that I don't see great value in knowing about Jesus and being a Christian. And the second is the idea that Christianity is meant to be a relationship or a set of relationships rather than a religion. Now the second section I've broken into chapter 7c so that chapter 7b isn't too long. Now I want to explain these ideas a bit more because they can be a bit of a sticking point. And I should also say before I go on that my thoughts and ideas are just that, they are thoughts and ideas offered from my experience and study for your consideration. I'm not necessarily right and you must weigh them up. So firstly, the idea that you don't necessarily need to know anything about Jesus in order to know him. Now, no small amount of research has gone in to how quickly we can trust a stranger and studies suggest that clusters of nuclei in our brains called amygdala can help us decide whether or not to trust somebody even before we have spoken to them, before we know anything about them. And when it's critical, we can even decide to trust somebody before we have processed the thought enough to be conscious of their presence. It's as though something in us has recognised something about them and in them and testified on their behalf. And it can all happen in a millisecond. To make the decision, our amygdala used a kind of inbuilt trust compass that is based on past emotional experiences. It doesn't mean we always get it right. It doesn't mean that the person we trust is trustworthy. It just means that we can make the choice to trust them or to welcome them at the point we meet them before we know anything about them. Now the Apostle Paul said that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirits that we are God's children and that sometimes the Spirit speaks or intercedes through wordless groans. Now this suggests to me that there is something within us built in by our Creator to recognise and respond to God, to trust Him. It doesn't necessarily have to be articulatable and we don't always have to be conscious of it, but it's there. So when the opportunity to hear and learn about Jesus does come when we get to meet the real him, not just the one that we hear about through religion or religious people, but the eternal embodiment of God's love Jesus, then the spirit within us should recognise him. It should recognise the hands that shaped us and the heart that loves us as the one we knew all along, as the one we knew in spirit before we even knew his name or the details of his life, death and resurrection. And so I believe that this must include people who, in all good faith, have been worshipping him by another name, even a name that is not associated with being Christian. In his book, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis describes the moment that Aslan, or God, comes to end the world of Narnia and save all of those who knew him and were faithful to him. And one particular person who has been worshipping another God declares but I am no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. Now the person doesn't say this in a proud or arrogant way, rather he says it in a more admission of a misunderstanding because he thought Tash was good, uh, that Tash was God. But Aslan replies, child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. 
No service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. In our world, where we are presented with mixed and confused messages from different religions and within religions, with many people claiming to be God's people, his true spokespeople, this is exactly what we need to hear. We need to hear that God is bigger and more complex than our religious language and rituals, bigger and more complex than our religious systems and understanding, and yet paradoxically as simple and coherent as love. We should be beating the drum that says that God is more interested in our hearts than he is in us signing up to any religion that prioritises understanding the right doctrine, performing the right rituals and achieving a minimum moral standard above a humble and generous heart. Now I am not saying that doctrine, ritual and morality aren't important. They are. They help us remember and focus and appreciate and stay healthy. They help us live well. They are of huge benefit. But they don't bind us with God eternally. Love is the only thing that can do that. Doctrine, ritual and morality cannot hold love for eternity. But our hearts can. That is what they are designed for. And that is why God is more interested in our hearts. For the record, the hearts that I am referring to here are not the physical beating lumps of flesh in our chests. I'm referring to the hearts that are the seat of our emotions in our spirits. I'm not going to discuss the differences between heart and spirit here or anytime soon because well, I don't feel the need to and, and I'm not even really sure I can. But I will say that when our heart is in something, then our spirit is too. And when our spirit is in it, then so is our heart they're practically interchangeable. And I will go on to say that when our hearts and spirits are into something, our beliefs and behaviour are brought to life. This means that religion is brought to life. It is given true meaning, not by its practices, but by the state of the hearts of those who practise it, which is obvious, really. And as such, religion, is given endless and timeless possibilities. So let's ask a question from what I said earlier and from C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. Can you be a Christian and not know it? It's a nice idea to think that people who haven't heard about Jesus and know nothing about him might actually know him in spirit. But what does the source of Christian authority say? What does the Bible say? In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul said that it is with your heart that you believe, before going on to say that faith comes from hearing and that we hear through the word about Christ. He then asks, well, how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? It's a great question, one that Paul goes on to answer himself by referring to the psalmist 
who said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all of the earth, their words to the end of the world. Did they not hear? asks Paul. Of course they did, he says. Paul and the psalmist are saying that the voice of God is everywhere, that God is always speaking through the fabric of the world and that his words are for everyone. They are saying that while God's words may not always be cerebrally articulatable, if that's possible to say, let alone understand, that it is possible to respond to his words within our hearts. In fact, it looks like they are saying that we respond to God's words with our hearts first, before we understand them fully in our heads, perhaps in our amygdala. The problem with this idea is that it appears to blur the line or point of salvation. If heartfelt belief is not necessarily articulatable, then how do we know who is saved and who is lost, for want of better words? And doesn't the Apostle Paul also say that salvation requires people to declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord? Yes, he does, but I think that the confession of the mouth can wait until we actually recognise the real Jesus, which, as with the worshipper of Tash in C.S. Lewis's last battle, may be at the very end. In the third chapter of John's Gospel, Jesus summed up the nature of this apparently blurred line when Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, came asking for clarity on this very matter, on the matter of who is part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus explained, saying, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the spirit. So Jesus was saying to the religious leader that it doesn't work as he may have thought. He was saying you cannot tell how a person who is born again got there. You cannot tell where they are going. He's saying that there is no box, that there is no line of salvation that can be defined by articulating your beliefs or amending your behaviour. It's much more free-flowing than that. Being born again, or being born from above, as it's probably better translated, is not limited to a one-off experience. It's a living experience of the spirit, of the heart. It's a number of decisions, each one backing up the last. Some, or one of these decisions, may be more notable or memorable than the others. Some of us can pinpoint a moment of realisation and decision, a moment of artic articulation, when we change direction, when we became a Christian. And that moment is of massive importance because it was a life-changing moment. But it doesn't necessarily work like that for everybody, and that is okay. In a world, in our world, where lines are so important, where we want to know where people stand on one matter or another so that we can make a judgment about them or put them in a box 
and where Christianity, especially the evangelical stable that I've come from, has tended to draw a line, it's not especially easy to hear Jesus talking like this. Now, before publishing this book with Still to Find a Publisher, another publisher considered taking it on, but after a bit of to and froing, they rejected it on the basis of it bordering on universalism. Now, I must admit that I was quite disappointed by their rejection, but I was also quite pleased at the description. In Christianity, universalism is the idea that in the end, everybody will be saved, meaning that everybody will eventually be in heaven with God and nobody will be lost in hell. Now I'll talk about that a bit more later when I talk about heaven and hell because it is a big subject, but in the meantime, I will say that I like the idea of universalism and I think that God likes the idea too. It was, after all, his idea to save the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now I do not see the words, for God so loved part of the world, or God so loved some of the world. It says, for he loved the world. And as Peter said later, uh, God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, I think that God has done and will do everything in his power to save as many people as possible. Why wouldn't he? I also think that he will work out judgment in such a way that we will marvel at his incredible wisdom and wonder at his remarkable thought processes. And we will recognise him as love. I also suspect that we will feel slightly embarrassed at some of the judgments that we made during life. But, and it is an important but, whilst I am a universalist at heart, I don't expect everybody to welcome Jesus when they meet him, the real him. Now I think this is mainly because seeing the real Jesus means being fully seen ourselves. Seeing him is seeing the truth, not just the truth about him, but the truth about everything. John the Evangelist said, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. And Jesus said that there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Now this suggests to me that all the good and the bad in us, the strengths and the weaknesses, the success and the failure will be, remo will be revealed. It will be fully exposed. It's true that Christ died for us while we were still sinners and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that doesn't mean we get to hide. There'll be nothing to cover up our private parts when we meet Jesus. And I'm not just talking about our bodies, I'm talking about the person within, the body, our character, our very soul. Everything that is deep and hidden will be out in the light. Some of us may love this idea. Some of us may feel awkward about it, but think it's a good idea. Some may hate it so much that they just hate Jesus. In which case, upon meeting him, they aren't likely to respond with relief and humility. They aren't likely to welcome him. And then I can't see how God would or could with any integrity overall. I can't see him saving them against their will. There really would be no point or integrity in God saying that he judges and looks at the heart if, in the end, he doesn't actually mean it. Who is in and who is out is our business in that it's our job to encourage people into relationship with Jesus and his people. But declaring or deciding who is in and who is out is not our business. 
God is going to have the final say. He is the one who is best placed to see into people's hearts and read them. He is best placed to make the judgment. Let's let him do it. If we really want to know who is in and out, then rather than making a judgment based on how much somebody knows about Jesus or not, maybe we can refer to Jesus' suggestion that people like trees can be judged by their fruit. Where bad fruit, to mix metaphors, is defined as somebody being a ferocious wolf in sheep's clothing, where somebody seeks to do harm while dressed up as something harmless. Or we could consider Jesus' more explicit declaration that by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In which case, we may be surprised to find that some are in when we thought they were out and others are out when we thought they were in. And in the next chapter, chapter 7c, which is now called Still Not Dressed, we'll talk more about relationship 